Hello and welcome to this edition of the, this special edition even, of the Emotion Aware podcast. So this special edition is from the CIPD's L&D show that took place in May 2017 in London. Um, and what happened, I went to the L&D show and I interviewed a number of different people um, about emotion at work. As always, it was a wide-ranging discussion and topic. What you hear is unedited and is as as the conversation happened at the time. And we talk of, to a few different people and also there's a special, um, I think, what is a special treat? I hope it's a special treat um, from me as well. So uh, I talked with Joe Cook and Barbara Thompson. Um, Joe is a specialist in online digital learning. Uh, and Barbara is a respected professional and expert in, in the in the learning and development profession. And we talk in, in a wide range of things, but primarily about the role of emotion and learning. I also talked to Peter Cheese. Peter's the chief executive of the CIPD, and he and I talk again about a wide ranging list of stuff. So we talk about robotics, we talk about mental health in the workplace, we talk about culture, and we talk about the the view and the perception of emotions at work. And finally, we also get to hear from Peter about what so, what some of his personal practices or his personal experiences of, of working with emotion uh, as an individual. <clears throat> so first of all, we'll hear from Peter. Secondly, we'll hear from Barbara and Joe. And then thirdly, you'll get to hear my, what I'm now describing as a, as a special treat for you. So let's head over to the interview that I carried out with Peter Cheese, Chief Exec of the CIPD. Hi, welcome to this special edition of the Emotional Work Podcast. It's Phil Wilcox here and I'm with Peter Cheese, the Chief Exec of the CIPD, and we're sat in the Speaker's Lounge at the CIPD's L&D show. Um, and Peter and I are just going to have a chat about the, the, sort of the role that emotion has in the workplace, some of the challenges that that, that brings. Um, so, Peter, from your perspective, what, what are your thoughts on emotions in the workplace? And it's a really important subject, Phil. I mean, emotion is one of those truly human characteristics. Um, I mean, what intrigues me about it, if you, if you think about it now in the world of robotics and, and artificial intelligence, we're talking a lot about the future of work, is that the idea of emotion is coming much more to the fore. Um, I think so much of work in the past, certainly over the last two or three decades, has been trying to rationalise work and rationalise behaviour by controlling it. Um, and you hear these expressions of treating people like bad robots and almost squeezing the emotion out of people, which, you know, if it is one of those most essential things that make us human, then it's humanity as well. Um, and then to extrapolate into the future, that, you know, there's this very interesting idea of something called Moravec's paradox, which is this idea that the hardest capabilities of human beings to replicate are those capabilities we've had for the longest in terms of the entire history of humanity. And the two big ones are sensory motor skills, which we take for granted, and the other, interestingly, is emotion. Um, And of course emotion plays into things like creativity and judgment and all these other things, and it is a hugely important element of of, uh, how we work together and how we get the best out of each other. So it is a very, very important subject. It's, it's emerging in different forms in different ways. Yeah. And I think still the rationalist um, view of work, people would prefer not to talk about emotion because they immediately think it's about people throwing a wobbly or something. Yeah. But actually it isn't. It's about that truly human essence of what, what makes us human, what makes human work so powerful and so important. Mm. I mean, what, one, of, one of my big concerns is that, um, that, that squeezing of, of emotion 
or it is happens, but it only happens on particular types or categories of emotions. So if you if you're happy, that's okay. That's right. You know, you're, you're allowed to be happy. If you're you know, if you're angry or frustrated or or upset or disappointed or offended or you know any of those things, then then they're, 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 they're not okay. That's not that's not acceptable. You almost need to kind of squash and push them down. Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. And then of course that links into. Yeah, this very big subject, which is, thank goodness, much more at the centre of the agenda, about things like mental health and well-being. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we know from our own research and many others that stress is, is this sort of pernicious growth in the workplace um, and beyond. You know, it's not just about stress in work, but wider life. And that is a big f- cause of mental health issues, but it's also, interestingly, the single biggest cause of absenteeism for work, which we mm. know from our own studies. So we have to change thinking, right? So um, the fact is, we all experience the full range of human emotion, um, and if the culture of work, and perhaps it's a particularly British culture too, is that people come into work and if they're all stressed out, the usual response from the manager would be, "That's not my problem. Get on with your job." Whereas if they came in limping or sniffling from a cold, interestingly, we'd react very differently. We'd say, "Go home and sort yourself out." Yeah, absolutely. Um, so part of it's a, a cultural thing, part of it's almost a taboo thing, and, and this sort of reluctance of people to talk about emotion, um, particularly in the workplace, um, and recognising that you know, when people are angry and stressed, well, first and foremost, you're not going to get the best out of them, um, and uh, therefore our understanding of the wider categories of emotion, if you will, I think fundamental to building well-being, but also building productivity in the long term. Yeah, I, I, you know, from a number of different perspectives, I think um, if, uh, if if you if, if if individuals are able to deal with discrete emotion more effectively, so there's some really interesting studies done by a guy called James Pennebaker, and he looked into the therapeutic aspects of writing. You know, so after, you know, I, I, my my eldest daughter's ten, and she writes a diary, and um, I've made a decision not to read it. But my wife does. Um, but the therapeutic benefit that she gets from the from the you know, from the writing that she does. But if you ask, I ask a lot. You know, with my coaching and some of the consulting work I do, I encourage journaling. And often people are like, "Well, that's not. I don't want. To, I don't want to you know, write down how I feel." But actually, there's a lot of research that says, you know, what, there's a hugely therapeutic yes. way. And if you yes. can do with those episodic emotional aspects, the stress then doesn't build yep. because what happens if you don't by by almost kind of whether it be suppressing or repressing those different emotional experiences that then builds up, builds up, builds up over time, and then it becomes a mental health challenge. And part of, I think part of what I want to do is to try and help people deal with some of this stuff a lot earlier, yeah. so it doesn't grow into that. And I absolutely agree with all of that. I mean, it links into these notions of mindfulness as well, and yeah. very much part of it, which is give yourself time and space to reflect. Um, I think it is, you know, the word I use a lot, which is very linked to everything you said, is resilience. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of debate about resilience now. I mean, you can talk about resilience in an organisational level as well, of course, but to come to individual resilience, yeah. well, the first aspect of individual resilience is can I deal with the knocks and setbacks and can I understand and deal and, and help to manage stressful situations? And, and uh, uncertainty and paradox, which is all part of life, and arguably getting even more so. Um, and what I find very interesting in that is, yes, you can teach some of these techniques for sure. Uh, interestingly, we need to do much more for the younger generations coming to work, because yeah. there's a lot of debate about are the younger gener- generations less resilient? People talk about the snowflake generation and all these other things where they can't take contradictory inputs or things that challenge their world views mm. or whatever. 
So you're right. If you know, we have to think about how we understand stress and mental health and things of that nature. How do we support people better in work? But then, what are these interventions around coaching, mindfulness, understanding, and, and I agree, outlets like journaling, which is a reflective process. Absolutely, um, are well-proven techniques, but not things we've perhaps commonly adopted. Yeah. And, and I think there's, there's part of a risk, you know, so because of, it's then sort of what's credible within an organisation, so what practices or approaches are, you know, are, are okay. Yeah. Um, I remember I did a piece of work with a, a UK retailer, um, an optician's retailer in particular, and um, when we started their leadership development programme, the first thing we did was a 17-minute eating meditation. And the, the, the level of discomfort was, was huge. Um, and it was a calculated risk. You know, so we had 60, 60 of their most senior leaders in a room. I had a number of stooges positioned in, so, so I said, I don't want you to take part in it. I want you to notice if people seem to be struggling, if people leave the room, I want you to go with them and follow them and make sure they're okay. So there was a big, there was a big welfare kind of infrastructure wrapped up around it. Um, but it really shook what was you know, what was credible and what was allowed and what was permissible within the organisation. Like, what, what can I talk about? What can't I talk about? What am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And there's some of those cultural norms. You, you know, you talk about it from a societal point of view, yeah. being British. Yeah. But I think also yeah, it gets to... In, oh, you know, very in, manifested in the workplace. Yeah. Is because we've, we've almost mentally compartmentalised work and life. I mean, the, the, even the language we've used, the work-life balance, implies that work is a sort of special circumstance where I don't bring emotion to work. Uh, I, it's a rational activity, so just be rational. Um, and I think all the language now about it's not work-life balance, it's work-life integration. Uh, about how do you get the best out of the whole person and understanding the whole person, bring the whole person to work. But as you say, then you've got to create those sort of permissions in terms of the cultures and how teams work for people to express emotion. Um, and to let their feelings out when they need to. And, and I, I find it really intriguing because even the language of things like leadership, we've talked for a long time about authenticity, but not always understood what we mean by that. I mean, at one level, authenticity, of course, is about the whole person, but, but equally, authenticity doesn't mean to say that this is just how I am, so suck it up, and if you don't yeah, like yeah. it, too bad. Absolutely. It also means how do I learn to adapt and to be more responsive to other people's sentiments, feelings, behaviours, and emotions, and therefore, the absolute vital role in the wider sense of emotional intelligence mm. is a key component of what makes good leadership or good managers. And um, you, you pushed a hot button for me because uh, uh, I, you know, I have huge admiration for Daniel Coleman and the work that he's done to bring emotional intelligence to the, to the fore. Yeah. But for me, it's, it, what he's come up with is just too simple because emotions are far more complex yeah. than you know, self-awareness and self-management and awareness of others and, and, and you know, yeah. helping others work with it. There's so much that kind of underpins that it's almost like we the the reductionist would like to just make it that simple but it's just there's, there's so much that's wrapped up it's true but I, I suppose it's also that if you look at any anything in business in my experience we're always looking for these simple heuristics yeah. simple models because yeah. the reality is that a lot of these things are very complex you're absolutely right so can you make everybody understand the sheer complexity or, or do you have to find simplifications um, and models that help people at least understand the basics and I think that's always say, a challenge of business and we can certainly argue that many parts of business have gone way too far in trying to simplify things and, and actually this whole discussion we're having is an example of that yeah. it's a simplification of work as has been in the past to say the best way to manage people is to tell them what to do, give them a whole bunch of rules and tell them to shut up and get on with their job well it might be a simplification but it's not actually the right answer yeah. 
and so in the end when you get into these things where a lot of people haven't spent so much time in their lives thinking about emotion, how do I deal, understand it, deal with myself, as I said I think we're going to go back into education more broadly, but then in the world of work, you know, at least if we start with some reasonably simple heuristics and models which people can get their heads around, that's a start, Yes, and then you can build from there into it. So to, to bring us to, together, to bring us to, to a close then, any, any advice or hints and tips for either organisations on how to work with emotion more effectively or, or for individuals, you know, for, yeah, for if individuals are wanting to work with their emotions, any, any hints or advice or tips that you would give? I mean, I think uh, often you start these things with the individuals. I mean, if you're dealing with top leaders, you can talk to them about organisational, emotional intelligence or whatever, but actually you need to start with them. I always profoundly believe if you want something to work for an organisation, it's got to be personal as well, otherwise it's not authentic. Yeah. And certainly we all know things like, if we're talking about cultural aspects of business, that has to come from the top down. So yeah, I mean, I think helping business leaders to open up, um, to understand their own emotions and how they display those emotions and what effect that has on other people, those have become, I think, much more prevalent in the thinking of leadership development, way more than they were in the past. Now that's not to suggest we've got it all right, I think we need to do a lot more of that, but stress is, you know, if we go back to that subject, well, we know that one of the biggest stresses is how leaders themselves act, mm. and how they treat their own staff, and that permeates their culture. Absolutely. So, you know, I think my tips would be always be, yeah, we've got to make sure we're getting to the senior leaders, and this we're integrating this kind of thinking more in leadership development practice, uh, we're allowing, you know, and encouraging this idea of self-reflection, not just in the ways we describe, but also self-reflection in the sense of so I understand my own emotions and how they come out and when they come out um, and how they might impact other people. Um, I think neuroscience is another field that helps us understand this stuff more and I'm a big fan of it because I think neuroscience is also helping to give some hard edge to some of this stuff. Yeah, uh, so for example, if I take the subject of stress, we now understand more that the stress hormones themselves even get secreted through the skin and can affect level of people physiologically, this sort of mind-body thing. Um, so you have to start with that, but then I think we've also of course, got to legitimise the debate about uh, if we want to engage people and build these much more collaborative working environments and get the best out of people, then these are attributes of emotion and emotional intelligence and understanding they are drivers of creativity and innovation and passion and all these other ideas, they're fundamental to organisational success and resilience as well. So in, in other words, they're business issues, they're not just... Yeah, some liberal, yeah, let's all be nice yeah, to so each other kind of agenda. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's very important. We know we have to make these things have business context as well, and I strongly believe they do. And um, uh, that was going to be my last question, but then another one quickly comes to mind. For, for you personally, what are some of your techniques or your, your methods to help you um, work with some of the emotional aspects? Because um, you know, I imagine the work that you do, there'll, there'll be some... Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I suppose through my life, I've had various coaches and, and things like that, and, and I've always taken that seriously. I think one of the most profound things I had in understanding my own kind of emotional makeup, what drives me, I'm a pretty driven person. I, I think I can deal with stress quite a lot because I've been trained to in many ways with long career in consulting. Um, but I, I remember one of the most impactful things I had was um, with uh, a group of um, psychologists and coaches who took me back to childhood because it, they said there's a lot of how people, particularly in leadership, you react to things. It's about also how you use power and influence. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to understand how you react to power too and, and, and your emotional makeup in some of mm. these regards. And, and as I'm sure you recognize, a lot of this emotional makeup actually does start way back into your childhood. Yeah. 
Um, so what I found the most profound is kind of going on that journey and understanding some of the things about how I react to stress or how you might deal with confrontation um, uh, or how I deal with emotion and anger or whatever it might be. And, um, so, but those are, those are quite deep insights you have to get up yourself and you have to be, be prepared to go on that kind of journey. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. So thank you very much for your time, Peter. Uh, so we're at the CRPD's L&D show in London, um, and this is for the special edition of the Emotional Web. So thank you for your time, Peter. Thank you, Bill. Okay, so that was my... Um, conversation with Peter Cheese and, and it was a, a conversation I didn't expect to have um I happened on uh, on Peter on the afternoon of day two at the L&D show and it was really great to hear from you know him him and his role as chief exec of the CIPD talking about the importance and the the real pivotalness I suppose of of emotion in the workplace so a thoroughly enjoyable conversation similarly a great fun conversation that you're going to hear next in my me chatting with Joe Cook and Barbara Thompson and I'll put links to their Twitter profiles um, and LinkedIn profiles in the show notes too. So we, Joe and I begin and then Barbara comes to, to join us later on and we, we start talking about the role of emotion and learning and then we move on into um, identity and the different identities that the individuals can take both personally and professionally and then we also link in that into some work in terms of deception and impression management as well and both impression management from a face-to-face point of view and uh, and online as well and you'll get to hear more about what I mean by impression management as we go so let's head across uh, and you'll start to hear me chatting with Joe and then Barbara will come in to join us about halfway through. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Emotional Work Podcast. I'm at the L&D show in London at Olympia this week and I'm with lots of different practitioners all really interested in um, talking about and finding out more about the world of learning and development. In particular, for this snippet of the podcast, I'm with Joe Cook. Hi, Joe. Hey there. Joe's from Training Journal and she also runs um, an organisation called Light bulb learning bulb moments bulb moments damn <laughs> I nearly got it right um, and uh, Joe in particular is really interested in the digital learning aspect of things um, so because we're at the end of the show what I wanted to do was ask each of the people we're going to chat with around what r- links or uh, overlaps or roles do they see for emotion and learning so let's start with a nice big broad question then Joe if that's alright what do you see as the, the role of emotion in learning I think you can't have any learning without emotion because you need to be emotionally invested in something to pay attention to it. So actually I've just been interviewing Dr. Itiel Draw and he was saying how important emotion is for memory encoding, for making sure that you actually can recall information later. And if we think about things like stories and the way that we actually go and deliver information, we have to have an emotive element to mm-hmm. make people focused, to make them interested and want to remember and actually kind of those memories. There's some interesting reports around like actually does emotion help with memory or not there's some different things you can read about that but generally speaking if you're helping people to engage and focus that's a really good thing yeah yeah so uh, I'm with you on that you know what's the link between emotion and memory because it it depends what research you read I think in a way because in in some instances um, what emotion uh, events that are highly charged with emotion will do is they'll help you remember particular bits of it not necessarily the whole event so if there was a if somebody was giving a talk or some, if you were taking part in, a, in an experience or you were doing something in the workplace, you, 
yes, it might be really emotionally charging. You won't necessarily remember that whole episode. You might just remember particular aspects or <clears throat> or particular parts. So, is there something in your memory that sticks out? Has there been a, an occasion that is particularly kind of alert, a, 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 an episode of learning that was high in emotion for you? Yeah, I used to do marshalling at superbike races. So, okay. I was one of those people in orange overalls, waving a flag. Superbikes? Yeah. Wow. So, now I, hold, I want to open like a whole other conversation <laughs> with you, but I'll come back to that later. So, we'll come back to that, but that's something that I used to do. And so, obviously, what we had to do is have loads of training about how do you take a motor bike off of the gravel, and how do you deal with riders, how do you deal with the case that there's a race ongoing whilst you're trying to deal with an incident. But also we had to deal with how do you learn how to put out a fire. So it was basically it was fire extinguisher training. Mm. But what we actually did is we went out on a racetrack, there was something set fire to, we actually took it in turns to put the fire out, we had some kind of feedback on that. And the whole point of that whole day where we had this training, it was all highly emotional because A, it's quite a, an interesting sport, you know, regardless of whether you're into it or not, yeah. it's an interesting kind of topic. Also, you know, you're looking at people's actual safety here and whether people live or die in some instances, mm. including marshals. So it's really highly charged from that point of view. But also it was about the stories that were told, the pictures that we used, and it was the activities that we went and did mm. that made that really memorable. So when you asked me that question, that was the first thing that came to mind, even though that was quite a few years ago when I went and did that. And have you ever had to put it into practice? Is there, was there ever an occasion where where you needed to, to pull on that learning? Thankfully, not too much. Okay. Um, so, you know, luckily, I didn't have to run out in the middle of the road and kind of go and rescue people too much. But it really makes you aware of what's going on around you. So we're in quite a busy one already, mm. and it really makes me think about my peripheral vision and what's going on behind me. You know, this isn't a super bike race. We're at the COPD press, you know, area. Yeah. But it makes you think about those kind of things. In terms of actually doing that as a marshalling, it's about things like spotting people. So if somebody is dealing with a rider that's come off a bike, mm-hmm. you know, I have to be the person looking down the racetrack to say, well, actually, there's more bikes coming. They might come off because we don't know what it is, maybe noise or catch. Yeah. I have to be aware of your safety. So it's about actually working as a team, which is really important. Mm. Wow. And, and, and I've... Again, we've got a, a nice link in there in terms of we've got some learning transfer as well. So not, yes, you learned something that's particular to that kind of context, but also then you, you say you bring you're bringing that over and applying it into into other ways. Okay, cool. Um, and so superbikes then. Tell me about superbikes. Where did that, is that a personal kind of fascination for you? Yeah, and uh, I used to have a couple of motorbikes myself. I don't now, sadly, but I used to have a sports bike, a uh, proper big 600cc sports bike, and also a dirt bike, so I used to go off-roading or green lanes, as it's called. Um, and that was really interesting, like with many other hobbies that you do that are maybe sporting or adrenaline-based. You learn a lot about yourself, you learn a lot about equipment, about safety. Uh, it made me a better driver because I just had to look ahead. I had to be kind of more aware of what was going on. Um, I fell off and had lots of injuries. Well, because it's quite, a, I mean, the reason I ask is, it might seem a bit weird, but the reason I ask is it's a very emotionally charged sport, you know, so it's A, it's full of danger, B, it's really competitive, 
you know, so you and and it's not just competitive, like in in particular moments that that you know people you know, there are, people go up and down the order and the rankings, and even in the races as, as they go. So it's very a very emotionally charged sport. So um, yeah, I was just interested as to as to where that comes from. And, and people get you know because we're talking about emotion, people get really emotionally involved. Mm. So not only in their team, their rider, just just like you do with football or any other sport. Yeah. Um, but also you get very emotionally invested in the individual people. So when you have um, accidents like we have recently, you might have seen the Twitter hash Billy Wiz, the uh, the racing car driver had an accident. I forget which order he was in, maybe Formula Three oh, or something the, like that. The 17, 18 year old guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah like Formula Four, I think he was in. Yeah. yeah. And, and sadly, he had life-altering injuries where his legs happened to be amputated. Mm. You know, people get very emotionally invested in that, and actually, there's been an aspect just giving paint set up for yeah. him. He's going to race busy. again. There's lots of disabled racing that goes on now. Mm. And that happens in, in all sports, especially with kind of the more adrenaline sports and the more dangerous ones. People get interested and involved in that. And actually, you know, myself, I've got involved in charity work through that because of that emotional investment. Yeah. So whilst that might not be emotional work in the way that often we yeah. talk about the corporate world, actually it's all about those emotions that people bring together and what motivates them to do something. Yeah, and, and I think that... Um, I think that emotional connection with um, with something or someone um, it, it, it links into some work around identity because you know people then start to take on you know you, when you mentioned football you know people take on the identity of a football team they wear their football shirt or they might um, you know decorate their car with is it is it the doctor is that the, yeah, the, that's yeah. Valentino Rossi okay yeah. so Valentino Rossi well yeah. yeah so um, but but people will, will kind of import aspects of people within those sports into their identity. And I'm curious, do, do you think that happens in the workplace? Do you think people will, you know, does, does that, then how do you see that happening? How do you see well, we're on a podcast, so you can't see this, but have a look at my earrings and tell people what you can see if you can see anything. There's a letter T and a letter J for Training <laughs> Journal, I would guess. Okay, yeah. so, so, bring, so bringing that part of your identity in through yeah. what you're wearing. Okay. Absolutely, so I think, you know, people don't necessarily, you know, Am I going to go and put a training journal logo on the back of my car? No. Did I do that for a racing driver or, or racing rider I liked him for the motorbikes? Yes. Okay. You know, so people don't necessarily identify on that ultra-personal level. But they do because you can be proud of where you work. Um, and also you can tell other people you might want to recruit other people in. So, um, again, you can't see her on the podcast, but sitting with me is my business operations manager mm-hmm. for Lightbulb at the moment. I nearly called it Lightbulb Learning Lane, effectively. <laughs> um, and, and actually, I recruited him, so to speak, when mm. I was working at Booker International. So I'd seen another job going in another department, suggested he work there, and actually we've ended up working together at my company now. Okay. So I think there's that kind of emotional investment. And also you get things like, for instance, I'm not really into brands like you know, Nike, Adidas, whatever. That's yeah. not my thing. But give me um, a USB pen with where you work written on it, and I'm all over that. So okay. it's a different kind of branding, I think, that people get emotionally invested in. That's, mm. that's how I see it. Yeah, and, and I think um, it's interesting to see when... You know, at the conference here, is, you know, to, because people have their badges that they wear around their neck, and they've got the names of the the companies or the organisations that they represent. So they're almost bringing kind of two aspects of themselves. Yes, they're yes, I'm Phil, but I'm also representing this company or this organisation. So you've got that dual kind of identity um, thing going on. Okay. You're going to get onto one of my other passions of Superman in a minute, and the whole Superman Clark Kent thing. So you have to be very careful about how you ask. Okay. So, so Superman Clark Kent. 
Ah, you see, I've opened up a box then. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting how the dual identity of what we want people to see and how we want to behave in one aspect of our lives yeah. and then differently in another, the personal, the professional. Um, or in these days, we have lots of this with social media. It's, you know, it's the selfie kind of generation okay. where we're only presenting a certain element of ourselves. So I think that duality is really interesting, can be really damaging for some people when, you know, you can be at home feeling very miserable but actually sharing something on social media that's just a very different idea mm. of what's going on. And if you think about that in the workplace, yeah. it's about, you know, I hate to say that word authentic because it's so yeah. overused. Overused, yeah. But it's about being yourself, an appropriate version of yourself mm-hmm. in the right place with the appropriate use use of emotion and reaction to things like that. Yeah. That goes back to work that you did ages ago that we chatted about, mm. about not ignoring emotions. You wrote, you wrote for a training journey yeah. about how useful they are. Yeah. Yeah, so and I think that 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 dual identity aspect is really fascinating because I love how we get to. And there wasn't my intention we began, but we got to deception and, and you know and the, the deception even at a micro level that, that individuals will do in terms of trying to create an impression. So with, with, uh, within deception, I think there's lots of different types of deception. So there's kind of outright blatant, you know, lying. Where you're, exactly where you're, cre- where you're creating now, a. People think I'm a professional, so. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like cre- you know, creating a whole, um, uh, a whole false narrative or a whole false story. You know, so like a, somebody create a cover story or something like that. But then you also have things like impression management. Now, for me, impression management is a is a, uh, is, a is a technique of deception. So it's where you create an impression through through social media, for example. You can do that. You can create an impression that my life is amazing. Because I, I send, I, I post pictures of my children, or my family, or my life, or my interests, and what I do, and me constantly being happy, and all those sorts of things. But actually, that all of that impression management, what's this underneath that, isn't, you know, isn't really authentic, and it's not true in, in that. Um, and I think that translates into the workplace, especially with things like mental health. So you know, the work that the Royal Family have done, especially recently with the London Marathon and, and all the work with Heads Together, I've just found amazing to try and break that and, and change that narrative around. Um, mental health in the workplace. So one thing I'll say um, to the listeners who, who aren't here is we've also got, who, who's come to join us now, Barbara Thompson's come to join us, so she's at Carib Thompson on Twitter, um, and she's sat next to me nodding her head, so I'm going to give her the chance to kind of come in and, and join the discussion in a minute. Um, but that, um, that impression management, I think, is something that is used an awful lot, both on social media but also off social media as well. So I was talking with uh, Mark Gilroy, so he's at that Mark Gilroy on Twitter, um, about the uh, clothing and how clothing can be used from an impression management perspective. And again, Barbara's nodding ahead, so I'm just going to use that as a, an opportunity to invite her in. So, Barbara, your thoughts? Um, yes, I agree, and I think one of the best pieces of, uh, of advice that someone gave to me quite young on is to dress for the job that you have, that mm. you want, sorry, beg your pardon, and so I, I completely mm. resonate with that sort of impression management. I think social media is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I th- There's been a, a, quite a wide range of debate about whether you have sort of one social media persona or, or not, or not, and obviously that's down to individual choice. Mm. For me, I have different styles for different rooms, as I call them. Okay. So, 
um, on Twitter, I'm a version. On Instagram, I'm another version. Um, on LinkedIn, I'm most certainly uh, another different version, as I am to Facebook. And whilst that is a lot of effort for me to do that, what mm. I make sure that I'm doing is having the appropriate conversations in the appropriate rooms. So, in the example of Facebook, nobody particularly cares for the depth of insight that I have around learning. That it's much more free, fluid. That's mm. the type of people I'm connected with. Instagram, it, I think, is probably closer to, to myself. It's very visual narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and obviously it's quite short form in, in nature. So I, I think that is not about, for me, about impression management. That is going back to your point about authenticity. So mm. it's making sure the people that I'm talking to, I, I have rapport and it's the type of narrative for that conversation. Mm. So that's another way to sort of look at impression management. Yes, yes. So I think um, and what we're, we're starting to play with um, kind of different... So in an academic term, they'd probably be called activity types, which is where you have like a, um, uh, a set of rules and norms that apply to a particular activity that you're doing. Um, and sometimes they can be really constrained. So if you think about something like the courtroom, so the courtroom has a very particular activity type. You know, if you're if you're a witness or if you're being cross-examined, um, then you you're only allowed to respond to questions. You're not allowed to you know stand up and give your own prose or give your own narrative. That that's a role that's distinctly met for um, the barrister or the lawyer. Whereas if you t- change that community of practice to to something. Uh, much more informal then there's a much different set of rules and things that go around it so I think what you talk about there is almost digital kind of communities of practice to say in this space these are the things that are okay in this space these are the things that are okay in this space these are the things that that are okay or these are the norms that that I play by in that space would that be a that's actually really helpful for me to to hear it played back in that way Mm. because go back to that point that's completely overused it's, it's something that comes quite authentically to me but actually hearing you paraphrasing that way actually makes quite a lot of sense mm. And I think on that note of authenticity, it's always about different parts of ourselves in a way. So, you know, the me in the part is still me, but the me sitting here and talking is kind of that professional me. So, you know, they can, we've all got those different facets that we can draw upon and those social norms come into practice. Where I find it quite interesting is, you know, we're at the CIPD L&D show, but we're all going, or hopefully, we're all going to the pump this evening. So at what point do we transition into, you know, personal me who's down the pub but we're still in a very work environment I'm still with effectively colleagues and networking people um, you know so it's a very kind of corporate environment in that sense but we're going to be in the pub sharing drinks you know how does that transition mm. and, and I think the, the blurring of those lines can make it quite tough at times actually you know so why we used the word earlier that sometimes it can be hard work to, to work in those different rooms um, and, and I think at the risk of making a sweeping, at the risk of making a sweeping statement, I think part of it depends on how aware you are of where those boundaries sit for you. You know, how clear are you in your mind of, of it? So, um, I have two very different Facebook profiles. So I have one Facebook profile that is incredibly locked down. That I only have um, immediate family friends I've known for years and years and years on, and I'll talk about particular things in that context. Whereas I have another Facebook profile which is 
much more public. I won't accept you know any Tom, Dick, and Harry, but you know, in terms of if there's somebody that I I'm an acquaintance of, I will ha- happily get a phone request from them on there, but it won't translate over to mm-hmm. this other kind of network that I've got over here. Um, is, there, is that to do with protection, protection of yourself, or of your life, of your um, of what's going on for you personally, and maybe friends and family, or is that something else? Uh, so it's partly about privacy. Mm-hmm. So I suppose in a way you could link that into perception. Um, some of the work that I do isn't in the nicest spheres in, in the world. So sometimes I get involved in forensic settings and so forth. And so that can then put me at risk of harm. So therefore I want to make sure I protect any family and so on. So actually me now saying that I've got two profiles that was just that, I'll have to edit that out later. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, but if you've got it locked down, people won't find it. Anyway. No. So you'll be fine. Yeah. So it's, but it's, um, but yeah, there's that. I think there's some privacy aspects to it, and even, um, so like I'm not friends with my mum on, on Facebook, even on my on my locked down profile, because I didn't because I, I, I for me that profile was that was a space to allow me to be me and not and not be and not have that open to my mum, and that caused a massive rag, you know, in terms of emotion at work. Yeah. There was a lot of emotion work involved in that one. You bring up a really interesting subject then of what about being Facebook friends with your boss and your work colleagues? Mm. Because again, there's another boundary. There's, another a, there's a blur of identity yeah. again. Yeah, absolutely. So, what's your advice, Dr. Phil? Oh, um, <laughs> so there's some generic social media advice that I think anyone who's involved with social media will say, which is um, if you're going to, whoever you're going to be friends with, if you wouldn't say it openly to the big wide world, then don't say it on social media. So mm-hmm. if, if you have a particularly strong view, which if you were in a big social setting and somebody gave you a microphone and said, well, you say this yeah. to the room, if you would go, I'm not sure if I want to say that, then chances are you shouldn't say it on Facebook or on Twitter or, or where, wherever you are. Um, but I, I think linking back, if I, if I can, at the, at the risk of putting words in Barbara's mouth and saying, being clear about what channels you're using for what reasons, mm-hmm and what version of yourself you want to put in those spaces, um, that is a, is a useful and important yeah. thing to do. So, what about for you, Barbara? Any advice that you would give on that? No, I agree. And I think um, I have had a similar amount of tension with people wanting to join particular things. I'm quite mindful about those rooms and therefore those conversations. So I'm not linked in. Sorry, I don't have my boss on Facebook. That's kind of quite hard and fast separation that I have. I'm connected with them on LinkedIn and Twitter and other things. So, so yeah, I think it's just be clear about your own boundaries and, and therefore you can articulate that to other people. It's my take on it. And Joe, for you? I, think, I really like the concept of the, the different profiles that you can have your two Facebook profiles, for instance, mm. to be personal and to be kind of friendly work professionally because I think a lot of those relationships, because we're with those people so long throughout our day and our careers, and also the kind of intense work that sometimes we do. Actually, that can spill over into friendships. So having like the dual profile is really good. It would be really nice if some of our social media things could actually make that easier to be able to have dual profiles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also it's being mindful of what you're sharing and what you're doing exactly as you say. So many people, I think, hide behind the computer. And whilst in my area where we've webinars and virtual classrooms, that's a really great thing because then the interest to give them a label will maybe speak. Yeah. What that also means is you get the troll that then goes and hassles someone. So I think being mindful of that, but that's a, a whole other kind of big challenge, not just to do with social media. Okay. So we, we've, we've been around a number of topics. So we started with emotion and learning, then we got into super bikes, 
um, and then we've kind of come round into deception and identity and, and growing the lines. So uh, I started off with um, what are the kind of the links or the, the roles of emotion in learning. So what would be good to get from both of you, if that's all right, is just uh, your final thoughts or, or recommendations to people on what should they be, what should they consider, or what should they be mindful of when they're thinking about the role of emotion and learning. So Joe, can I start with you, if that's all right? I think telling stories, it's a really big topic. A lot of people think they don't tell stories, but even just one sentence of your experience or asking your delegates for their experience, that is in itself storytelling. And that brings with it a certain amount of emotion and also reality. So I think that's a really important thing to bring to that. In the other um, senses, it's around kind of bringing in awareness of senses around your language, around how you're setting up activities, mm-hmm. and making sure it's really experiential. It's not just a lecture, otherwise, you know, you're probably not going to have the greatest amount of emotional reaction to it, depending on how good your lecture is. Yeah. Um, but if you can get people kind of involved and engaged and doing activities, that's going to be a very different thing, and that's much more emotionally charged. Wonderful. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and then, by the way, I'm putting you on the spot a little mm. bit because you weren't here for the beginning. So, um, so any advice or guidance or, uh, or tips on I emotion and learning? With everything you said, and in terms of the yes and, I think there's, there's two points I'd like to make. I think one thing that we should be doing is being mindful of often people who work in L&D are, have generally quite high emotional intelligence, and therefore we construct things that sometimes I would even argue are perhaps dialing up the emotion too much particularly mm. in the classroom context, and it switches people off. So I think we just have to be mindful of that. Um, actually, I'm going to make three points. The second point is, I'm sure it wouldn't happen to any of us around here, but I, I don't think it's particularly adapt to adult to say that we're going to design content and tell the learners that it's going to have lots of emotion in it. For me, this just makes, makes it feel quite um, mm. parent child. Because okay. for me, I feel played when someone tells me that they're, they're going to introduce that. Yeah. And the third point is kind of picking back up on the stories as well. I think that sometimes people think that the stories have to be profound and it needs to have you know, something very punchy. I think if we can just stretch out um, in the language of people what stories mean to them, then I think that you can just get this culture of people sharing insights or whatever that's the language is that resonates with them. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so I think for me... Um, uh, probably back to one of the things I said to, at the start is that um, when it, when there is a lot of emotion in learning, that doesn't guarantee that somebody will remember everything, all of the experience that they had. They may just remember parts or elements or aspects of it, um, and it may not be a, it may not be a pleasurable thing. You know, sometimes I remember one of my one of my most memorable but most despised learning experiences was where. Um, a facilitator deliberately kind of set me up and then brought me all the way down and then tried to bring me back up again in like a we're going to break them and then bring them yeah, back up right. point of view and I hated every second yeah. of it does, is it does it strong my memory absolutely yeah. but for all of the wrong That's reasons right, you know um, so just because you can create something evocative and just because you can create something that's, that is going to be emotionally charged for the learner that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to remember what you want or that they're going to remember it in the way that you want it to be remembered Okay, so I want to say thank you, Joe and Barbara. So just quickly, um, if people want to get in touch and find out more about you, uh, Barbara, how, what would be a way for people to do that for you? Sure. Um, feel free to follow me on Twitter. It's probably uh, one of the best rooms to come and follow me, and it's Carib, C-A-R-I-B, Thompson. Wonderful. Thank you, Barbara. And Joe? 
I'm on Twitter as Lightbulb Joe, and you can visit my blog and website at lightbulbmoment.info. Wonderful. So thank you very much, both of you, for taking part in this snippet of the Emotional Work podcast. We'll do some more as we go, and then um, we'll, this, this will merge together with a number of different interviews that we'll do over the course of the two days here at the CIPD's Energy Show at Olympia. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Hello again, and that was my conversation with Joe Cook and Barbara Thompson, where we talked about a whole host of, of different stuff. And one of the things that I love about this podcast is that um, by choosing not to edit it, you get to hear where the conversation goes. And um, whilst it didn't go where I expected in terms of talking about superbikes and so on, um, I think it was still a really fascinating conversation as well. So that then takes us into our final section then. So one of the things I was asked to do was to be part of an Ignite Lab uh, on day one of the CIPD's L&D show. Now an Ignite presentation is one where you have five minutes to explain your kind of key concepts and idea. And the way it works is that you've got a predefined set of slides. So it's a set of slides that you've built and there's 20 of them and each slide lasts 15 seconds. And each slide will then move on automatically. And I decided to take a bit of a risk with it in that one thing that I've always enjoyed since I was about 16 actually is I've always enjoyed poetry and I haven't written a poem for years I've, I've written parodies and song parodies and stuff but I've not written a po- I've not written a poem for a long long time and I thought you know what here's a good opportunity to do that here's a good opportunity to to play an experiment with what would it be like doing a, a poem or doing spoken word poetry as my Ignite presentation. I've seen it done once before by a guy called Gary Cookson. He did it at uh, a conference I was at last year in 2016. Um, But I wanted to give it a try. So with uh, lots of practice beforehand, and if you want to find the video of this, I'll put the link to the video um, that's available online as well. But for now, here is the audio of my... Um, spoken word poetry at the CIPD's L&D show um, and my poem was called uh, The Glass on the Wall Okay Who am I? <laughs> what can I be? If I say I am this what do you see? Does it matter? Do I care how you see me from over there? Yes, it matters, because you see, and if I like it or not, you're going to judge me. As things change from one moment to the next, your views, they shift and change in line with context. I couldn't do a session with that. Standing here now upon this stage, reciting poetry, even though I'm middle-aged... And as you judge my words and my speech, how far in the future could this version of me reach? Because the me that you see here isn't just me now, it's who I've been, what I've done, my past. Somehow it's here with me upon this stage. And still I wonder, what do you see? And that's why I'm scared and happy and angry and proud standing here now in front of this crowd. Because I've made a choice to do something new. I've seen it before, but from very few And with that choice, I show a new part of me, and then I wonder, what will you see? Will you accept the change? Will you take? Or will you be like Taylor Swift and shake, shake it off? 
like that Taylor Swift, and off to the charity shop with the rest of the thrift. Because me from the past had to answer the call, who am I, was my question to the glass on the wall. My first promotion, made up so proud. To be able to say, I manage, I lead, and say that out loud. I'm a leader, a boss, but be different, I'm told. Who you are, it doesn't fit. You need a new mould. Unsure, but okay, and, and what do I know? I mean, they've been leaders for ages, so I'll give it a go. Okay, I say, and then you, me, comes to work, but my team, they're disappointed. Their boss, he's a jerk. Who are you? Where's Phil gone? This new you, we don't like him. You know what? He can jog on. I don't understand. I was told to be new. I was told I had to change and evolve and take a new view. And so whom do I listen? Do I listen to my boss or to my team? Oh, I don't know what to do. It's like a bad dream. But if I look back now, I can see through it all, I never really answered my question to the glass on the wall. To the present me then, when I change, when I move, I bring with me my past and it allows me to choose. I make a change. And I have to wonder, what will you think? This new me, with poems, will I swim? Will I sink? Being a bit nervous, you know what? Let's stop and take a rest, just for a moment. Let's take a breath. To the future me then, how will I answer the call when my question is asked to the glass? on the wall because the future is tied to the present and the past my actions my choices they have a shadow to cast in the work that we do with people every day and their past and their present and their future is at play i have a choice like how to ignite with a slide deck a story a poem i hope it's not so yes, let's try, let's try something new and see what people think and try this new view. It's something we miss, I think, in our work as L&D, asking the question, who am I? We're often so damn busy with content design and delivery. And I think others will agree that working with self is worthwhile work for you and for me. So helping other folk think to answer the call, who am I, is the question to the glass on the wall. And for me, I'm okay at the moment about who I am and what I do and what is my flow. I enrich lives at work and I protect people too. But most of all, I love what I do. Who am I is a question that I ask a lot because the answer, it changes, but yet it does not. Who am I is a question that I often face because it helps, it gives me an anchor, a place, and that place really helps me because no matter what you see, I know that who I am is enough, and enough is me. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Emotion at Work podcast taken from the CIPD's L&D show in London in May 2017. Um, so you've got to hear from Peter Cheese um, and from Barbara Thompson and Joe Cook um, and them sharing their views and ideas and experiences in the role of Emotion at Work in, in lots of different ways. You also got to hear my um, my Ignite presentation that I gave um, on day one of the CIPD's L&D show where I had a bit of an experiment using some spoken word poetry. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, it'd be great if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a review um, and let us know what you think of the Emotional Work podcast. It'd be great to find out um, what you think and how you feel about what, what it is that we get to hear and the content that we share. You'll find future editions, uh, future special editions even, of the Emotional Work podcast to come. So we sent a raving reporter, Joe Stevenson, out to the Emotional Intelligence Summit that happened recently in London. So that special edition of the podcast will be coming out soon. And also we've got future episodes in the pipeline as well. So thank you very much for listening to this episode and we'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to the Emotional Work podcast. Written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox. Edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.